0: Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Sophia, and this month we've got something a little different. Uh, Julie and Adriana have both welcomed new babies in recent weeks, their sons, Pat and Paul. So we're going to share a talk that I recently gave at the Catholic Chaplaincy of the University of Cambridge on the neuroscience of ruptured relationships and restoring communion. But we'll be back next month with a regular episode. And until then, please pray for these newest members of the Pilgrim Soul family. The entire world is at war and in self-destruction. Pope Francis recently spoke these words during a conversation about the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. He was certainly referring to the nearly 50 ongoing armed conflicts in the world. In Myanmar, Sudan, the Holy Land. But he also referred to the self-destruction of our decadent society, the violence in our homes and in our streets, the conflict in our offices and governments. The entire world, he said, is at war and in self-destruction. And where is Christ? Where is the Lord who came that we might have life and have it in abundance? We heard in today's gospel, his promise to his disciples, "'Peace I give you, my peace I leave to you.'" At every celebration of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the priest repeats these words to us. But gazing at this world at war, it may seem that these words are hollow, that Christ's promise to be with us to the end of time is empty. But when the word of God strikes us in this way, when it moves our hearts with this burning question of where are you, Lord, is this true? It's not a sign that Christ has failed us. It's a sign of our need for conversion. The contradiction between the words of the gospel and the way that we live is an invitation for us to change our gaze and our lives so that we can understand and correspond to the truths that his words reveal to us. And in this case, what is that truth? It's that peace is possible because he is present in the church, that is to say in each one of you, in each one of us. The divine physician who wants to heal the wounds of a world at war is present in you. This is an uncomfortable claim. I think we often turn it into an abstraction. We try to relegate the fact that we are Christ's body to the abstract level. Imagine it as some kind of transcendent reality that has nothing to do with us and our humanity. Or we reduce the peace that Christ came to bring to a sociopolitical change as if the divine physician were present only at negotiating tables. These reductions, I think, blind us to our responsibility to work for peace, a responsibility each of us carries daily in every encounter that we have. The peace that the whole world is crying out for won't be fulfilled until heaven, this is true, but it begins from the relationship that you have with the person sitting next to you. It's in that bond that the grace of God will enter the world. You may be thinking to yourself, I came to Fisher House tonight for a talk on neuroscience. What on earth does this have to do with the brain? Which is an excellent question, and the answer is simple. The brain has everything to do with the peace that Christ came to bring. Because we are embodied souls, or ensouled bodies. This is a radical proposition in the world of today. I think we tend to think of souls in a different way, like a ghost in the machine of our brain. Since the time of Descartes, in particular, one of my favorite nemesis, we've been tyrannized by this view, which is formally called substance dualism. We've fallen prey to the idea that the soul is a kind of immaterial substance that is separate from but somehow causally interacts with the material substance of our brains. This is the air we breathe, the water that we swim in. Chances are many of you in this room are implicitly at least substance dualists. I'm very sorry to break it to you. (laughs) Because this is not a true vision of reality. It's not the Catholic view of the human person. We believe, instead, in a union of spirit and matter in a single human nature. As St. Thomas Aquinas, who I was talking to Tia earlier, I could not find a schematic of something that was not substance dualism, so I decided to go with Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, drawing on Aristotle's principle of hylomorphism, describes the soul as the form of the body. In other words, it's the cause or the principle by which a body is alive and is human. So the person is a composite of soul and body. Why do I bring this up? Because this means that the darkness of sin, the wounds caused by sin, and conversely, the glories of the redemption and the peace that Christ came to bring, are not just spiritual realities. They're inscribed in our brains and our bodies. And this means that by looking at the nervous system, by looking at the brain, we can better understand both the violence that the Pope is condemning and the peace that he's calling for, which is exactly what I'm going to try to do today. I'm going to tell a story about the brain that will help us understand how sin wounds us and how we can be the presence of Christ who heals those wounds but the story actually starts before sin, before the fall of Adam and Eve allowed war and violence and sin to enter the world. It starts with creation. We read in Genesis that God created the human person in his image and likeness. What is that image and likeness? Well, this is a God who has revealed himself to be Trinity, to be a communion of three persons eternally giving themselves in love the father eternally generating or begetting the son who eternally proceeds from the father, receives love from the father. And that love between them is the spirit proceeding from the father and son. So it's the overflowing of this Trinitarian life that gives birth to all creation, especially the human person made in his image and likeness. So that the origin of your being is a communion, is a relationship of love. And the farther that I've gone in my studies of neuroscience, the more I've discovered that the brain clearly reflects this reality. It proclaims it. The brain reflects our Trinitarian origin because it's fundamentally a relational organ. What do I mean by a relational organ? I mean that the brain both develops and functions through relationships of love. To understand this, we first have to know something about brain development. So please, you humanities people, bear with me. Through some science, I'm going to explain the main steps of how your brain came to be. So the development of the nervous system starts in the very first few weeks of life while you are still a tiny embryo in your mother's womb. A handful of the cells in your body begin to become brain cells or neurons. And the birth of neurons accelerates really quickly uh, during embryonic development. 86 billion of them are going to be born by the time that you enter the world. So we have these brain cells. And they're all born tightly packed in the center of the nervous system. And the second step of brain development is that they need to move through the embryo to their proper place. They need to migrate to the places that they belong in the brain and what will become the spinal cord. Once they arrive, then they mature and start getting ready to perform their function. What do brain cells do? Some of you probably know this. They have to communicate with each other. They send electrical signals to other neurons along long connections called axons, which you see there, and they pass messages kind of like a telephone wire from one place to another. So the third step of brain development, we have the birth of neurons, their migration to the right place and maturation, then they have to form these connections. And during infancy, neurons form these connections at an explosive rate. So here you see a cross-section of the cortex from newborn to what would be the equivalent, this is actually a rat cortex, but would be the equivalent of a two-year-old human child. So you see that there's a rapid growth in, in connections. And these connections eventually get consolidated into the neural circuits that support things like your breathing, your behavior, your emotions, and eventually also your higher order thoughts. We also have one final step of neurodevelopment, at least one final step that I'm going to talk about today, which is the elimination of connections. This seems a bit counterintuitive because we've just expended a lot of energy to make these connections. But imagine you're driving from one place to another. It would be more efficient, rather than taking all the backcountry roads, to take a highway. You get to the right destination very efficiently. So the final step of brain development that we're going to talk about today is the elimination of inefficient and unnecessary connections and the consolidation of the remaining ones into these super highways in the brain. So the birth of neurons, then they move, they connect, and they consolidate. These are the steps that take us from a handful of cells at the start of life to a fully fledged nervous system. And it's an intricate and complex process. It's a miracle that any of us are here with a fully formed nervous system. So how does the nervous system achieve this precision for a long time? Neuroscientists clearly not in dialogue with any mothers thought it was just genetics. In other words, they thought that the information of our DNA wholly directed the steps of our brain development. But in recent decades, we found out that this is wrong. It's not just your genes that determine your brain development. Your brain cells depend on something else to guide them. And what is that thing? It's the environment. It's the experiences that a child has in the environment, and specifically experiences of loving relationship from her parents. This gives the child's nervous system crucial information that directs the development of the brain. So when a child is in in the womb, a lot of this information comes directly through the mother's body. So maternal heart rate, touch, patterns of movement, hormonal responses to stress, all of these things provide signals that can influence brain development. So the mother's loving care of her own body and care of the baby within that body fosters the proper connection and organization of neural circuits. So on a neurobiological level, we see from the very start that the human person is fundamentally embedded in relationships of love, fundamentally dependent upon love. But this doesn't stop at birth, far from it, because the brain keeps developing in dialogue with its experiences. Across the first few years of life, the brain more than triples in size, in volume, and its neural circuits gradually mature until they can support higher level, almost adult, thinking and behavior. And again, the signals that drive this growth and maturation are the cognitive and social stimulation that a child receives from her loved ones. So because of this fact, because of our developmental history, that relationships drove the development of our brain, our brain is fundamentally programmed, if you want to use that metaphor, which is not a metaphor I generally endorse. It's programmed to rely on the brains of others in order to do what it should. So your memory, for example, depends on the stimuli of the faces of other people in order to recall what it would otherwise forget. Or your attention depends on the gazes of others to serve as a scaffold that would suppress irrelevant thoughts that would distract you. Not to mention your emotional networks, which are exquisitely tuned to the states of other people. Or your top-down control of your behavior, which draws great strength from the example and accompaniment of other people. Of course, none of these capacities are reducible to the brain. They are also psychological and even spiritual. But the regions of the brain that are involved in and support things like memory, attention, emotion, self-control, they depend on our social embeddedness to do what they're meant to do. So we see that in the depths of our neurobiology, in the development and the function of the brain, a reflection of the truth of our being, that we're made in and through relationships of love, in the image and likeness of a God who is Trinity. And therefore, that interdependence, dependence, embracing our dependence on other people, is the path to our flourishing. But of course, we also know that sin entered the world. Original sin was Adam and Eve's rejection of relationship, relationship with the father, rejection of their dependence upon him. And every sin that follows, the ones that we commit, the Bible says the righteous man falls seven times a day, every single time, it's a rejection of relationship and dependence. And this wounds us in a way that affects our nervous system as well as our minds and our souls. We see this perhaps most poignantly, and this is my area of research, in situations of abuse and neglect. When children grow up deprived of the loving care that they deserve. Because remember, our nervous system depends upon experiences in order to develop. And so abuse and neglect early in life can change the trajectory of the maturation of the brain. To understand how this happens, think of the parent of an infant. When his or her baby cries, the parent will pick them up and soothe them and ensure that the the child knows that their needs are being met. This will shut down the stress response of the infant. It communicates to the baby's nervous system, you're safe. So the stress hormone levels can fall and the brain activity can shift from this high alert state to a more regulated one. But what would happen if the child was ignored by the parent or if the parent treated the, the child with cruelty? And not just once, but systematically over a period of time. Well, the child's brain wouldn't receive the signal that the child was safe because she's not. And so it would remain on this sort of high alert status. And there's evidence that over time, this can change the size and activity and connectivity of certain regions of the brain. For example, the amygdala, which plays, among other things, an important role in our awareness of the environment and of our emotions. The amygdala seems to have higher baseline activity in children who have been maltreated. In other words, when the child is at rest, there's more activity, there's more communication happening in this region of the brain. So the experience of violence seems inscribed in the biology of these children's brains. But why is this relevant? Why do we care about this difference? Well, the difference in activity seems to make these children more sensitive to stress later in life. And in particular, it seems to make them more likely to see other people as a threat. This doesn't mean that the child's brain is broken, this is a very important point. Because heightened sensitivity to threats, think if you've developed an environment where your life is in danger, it is threatened, it can be helpful to have this sensitivity to future threats in your environment, it can protect you. But of course, this kind of adaptation can also make it harder to trust others thereby perpetuating the pattern of broken relationships that maltreatment can affect in a child's life. So here we see that the sin of the parents, through a wound that marks the body of the child, interferes with the fullness of life that the Lord desires for that child. Another place that we see the wound of violence is in war. These are Ukrainian servicemen in Kharkiv. Studies of veterans who have fought in armed conflicts, like what's happening in Ukraine, as well as civilians who have survived them, show widespread differences in the brain. These include changes, again, in the volume, activity, and connections of certain brain regions. As an example, let's take the anterior cingulate cortex, which is towards the front of your brain, which is involved, among other things, in the regulation of your mood, your pain, and the self-control of your impulses. One study compared soldiers who were deployed to a combat zone to their peers who were not deployed for the same amount of time, and it found that deployment ended up reducing the volume of the anterior cingulate cortex. It was smaller, it shrank in these men who had been deployed to a combat zone. How can that be? Well, we know that the brain remains plastic or malleable throughout the life. It can continue changing. And as I mentioned towards the start of today's talk, neural connections that we don't use are eventually lost because the brain is trying to be efficient. Eventually, if you lose enough brain connections, the size of your brain can actually decrease. And that seems to be what happened in this case. It seems that immersion in a hostile environment where you're carrying out violent acts or you're you're witnessing them happening can actually lead to the atrophy or shrinking of the anterior cingulate cortex. But again, why should we care about this change in the brain? Other studies have found a correlation between the volume of this region and things like symptoms of PTSD, anxiety, and depression. So there seems to be a pathway there are many contributing factors, but there seems to be a pathway that passes through the biology to the kinds of mental health difficulties that veterans often face. So we see that war can wound us in a way in our brains, in a way that participates in the psychological and spiritual damage that violence inflicts in our lives. A third and final place that we see the wound of broken relationships in our biology, at least final in terms of what I'm going to cover today, is when individuals are lonely. We are living in amid a crisis of loneliness, an epidemic that is that is only getting worse, no matter what index we use, I was looking at research earlier today, across all indices, like size of social network, the number of hours you're spending with people that you love, the number of social interactions you have with your household member, the number of close friends that you number on the the census survey, at least this is a census question that we have in the States. It's all falling. And the Surgeon General just released a report outlining the physical consequences of loneliness on your health, comparing it to smoking 15 cigarettes daily. Loneliness, 15 cigarettes daily. But this detrimental impact of loneliness also includes the brain, which doesn't surprise us, of course, because we know it's a situated, it's a relational organ that depends upon others in order to do what it needs to do. So the impact of loneliness on the brain is still being understood. There aren't as many studies as I would have liked to see. But one recent study found a really striking, thought-provoking result. It compared patterns of brain activity that underlie thinking about yourself and thinking about others between people who are and are not lonely. I'm going to repeat that. They looked at the patterns of brain activity that are happening when you think about yourself and when you think about others and compared that activity between people who are socially connected, people who are socially isolated. And they found that lonely people have a greater discrepancy in brain activity in the medial prefrontal cortex than socially connected people when thinking about themselves compared to thinking about other people. So it seems that the experience of loneliness changes the function of the brain in a way that corresponds to a distorted neural representation of the self, of yourself as somehow alien to other people, as fundamentally different from others. So even in our biology, we can see that loneliness distorts our access to the truth of reality, which is that we are made in and for and through relationships of love. This finding, I think, parallels what happens in situations of solitary confinement, like when people are uh, in prison, subjected to long periods by themselves. Often, you'll find that um, these people will start hallucinating, so they'll start seeing things that aren't really there, or uh, dissociating from their identity, so experiencing a breakdown of their self concept So again, we see that there's actually a a loss of our connection to reality and understanding of ourselves and others in the world when we're deprived of loving relationships with other people. So abuse, war, loneliness. But this is not the final word on the world. Adversity and war and loneliness is not the final word on the world because sin has been conquered. The Lord has redeemed us and his victory will not be complete until he comes again, which hopefully is soon. But his grace is already operative in the world. Operative, as I mentioned at the start, through us. We are the body of Christ. We are the divine physician in the world, the church. This might seem scandalous to some. And honestly, I think if we're taking it seriously, it should be scandalous. But this is the method of God. This is the method of a God who assumed our humanity in the incarnation in order to save us and established a church to be his continued presence in the world. He continues to act, but he's non-competitively transcendent. His action doesn't compete with us. His grace is not opposed to our works. The initiative of the spirit can take place through our actions. So each one of us can participate in his victory over sin and death. Again, I think we often make this like an abstract thing or relegate it to the global scene, as if it couldn't happen in this room right now. But peace is a possibility that's presented to us in the smallest details of our daily lives. It's a responsibility that we have in the smallest details of our daily lives. Monsignor Paolo Pezzi, who's the Catholic Archbishop of Moscow, once said uh, in a conversation I was listening to about the, the war in Ukraine, that peace begins in the heart by welcoming the peace that is Christ. And he said that those who have the courage to do so become irresistibly contagious. We're asked to welcome the peace that is Christ in the person next to us in our siblings, our friends, our classmates, the homeless men and women that we pass on the street. Either the presence of Christ changes something about how we treat these people, or we're treating it like an illusion, like an idea, a figment of our imagination. So the peace of the world turns on whether or not you say yes to Christ in the person next to you, in loving Christ in the people next to you. So what do we do? Concretely, how can we collaborate in ending the war and self-destruction that Pope Francis rightly says is consuming the world. Well, as a neuroscientist, I think neuroscience can help us here again. Just as it put flesh and bones on our being made in the image of a Trinitarian God and on the wound incurred by our sin, so can it help us see what it means to participate in redemption. And there are certainly many ways to do so, as many as there are people in the world but I'm gonna propose three primary forms that this is going to take in our lives. Three ways that we can participate in the peace that Christ came to bring that I've discovered both in my personal experience and in my neuroscience research. The first is care for children. As I mentioned before, the growth and maturation of a child's brain isn't just dependent on genetics, but on dialogue with the environment, in particular interactions with loved ones. This unfolds through a process known as, in the research, as biobehavioral synchrony, which is the coupling of physiological and behavioral rhythms or patterns during interactions between an adult and a child. And we see this coordination or this coupling in four different domains, broadly speaking. First is coordinated behavior. This is when, if you look at a a mum and her child, you'll see this happening so clearly. They'll babble back and forth to each other or look at the same physical object and give it back and forth to one another. These shared behaviors are essential for the formation of an infant's language centers, the development of her abstract thought, and her later social behavior. The second domain is in the heart rate. Just through the sharing of a smile or a gaze, a baby's heart rate regulates itself by matching the adult's heart rate. Isn't that crazy? And this is thought to be important for the development of physiological and emotional regulation in the infant. So she gradually learns by mimicking the mother how to do this on her own. The third domain, these are coordinated endocrine responses. For the non-biologist, that means hormones. That helps the baby's brain learn to regulate her own arousal and stress. And finally, there is some evidence for actual inter-brain synchrony, brain-to-brain synchrony. This means that a baby's neurons seem to mimic the patterns of activity of an adult's neurons. And these cortical oscillations, or synchronous dynamics in the cortex, are known to be important for things like attention, memory, and higher-order thinking skills. So interacting with infants in the most ordinary, embodied ways supports their growth into who they are called to be. And crucially and beautifully, I think, there's evidence that these kinds of interactions can buffer against the effects of maltreatment. If someone else is perpetrating maltreatment in a child's life, engaging in these interactions with that child can help protect against the impact of that adversity. Now, bi-behavioral synchrony, you will not be surprised to know, is most easily achieved between a mother and her infant or a father and his infant. So I think this supports the fact that the vocation to parenthood is the primary way that we are called to participate in God's ongoing act of creation of the world. But it's not limited to just biological mothers and fathers. We're all called to be spiritual mothers and fathers as well. As Edith Stein says, the soul of a woman is fashioned as a shelter in which other souls may unfold. And as Massimo Kamisaska says, to be a spiritual father is to practice the art of bringing the other to the full stature of his or her maturity. So care for children in these ways is something we're all called to do, and not just from a distance through offering spiritual support, important as that is, but tangibly, physically, in the flesh. By interacting with the children around you, by engaging in biobehavioral synchrony, we can participate in the ongoing creation and redemption of their nervous systems. So care for children. The second way that I think we can participate in the peace that Christ wants to come bring is friendship, Friendship, the free love of another person for their destiny, which St. Augustine, I was gratified to discover, describes as the one thing necessary in this world other than life itself. Isn't that great? So how does neuroscience portray friendship? Well, like with most things in neuroscience, there's a lot that we don't know. But neuroscience seems to show two things. First, that the love of our friends regulates our reward system. The reward system is a set of brain regions that supports your pursuit and attainment of positive things in your environment. So, for example, it helps play a part in your ability to both desire and attain things like good food and romantic relationships and success in work and addictive drugs. Um, (laughs) Research shows that stable and close friendships change what the brain's reward system responds to. So specifically, friendships lead the reward system to value positive rewards given to another in the same way that it would respond to positive rewards given to the self. And I think this shows that even in our neurobiology, friendship over time teaches us to rejoice in the good of the other, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this directly contributes to peace because at the heart of the violence in this world is Satan's lie that our lives are about us that our good is somehow different from the good of the people around us and different from the good of our neighbor, especially when the neighbor is different from us. So this is the first neuroscience finding about friendship. The second is that it changes the social brain. This is a set of neural regions that are involved in understanding the mental states of other people. So if you're trying to interact with someone and imagine what they're thinking about, you are using regions of the social brain, taking their perspective, all of these important social cognitive processes. Research seems to show that high-quality friendships, so stable ones with a degree of emotional intimacy, are associated with faster maturation of the regions that comprise the social brain. So we see that even on the level of the brain, it's by cultivating our relationships with our friends that we can gain the capacity to empathize with others, to understand their inner life. And I think this is part of the Holy Spirit's gift of understanding, coming to see the world a little bit more as God sees it, which I think is a critical element of the work for peace. The third and final form that I would like to propose to you today, the final form of our participation in Christ's victory over the world is prayer. Both liturgical prayer and personal prayer in silence. So liturgical prayer is the highest act that any of us can do because it affects our union with God and with one another. Unsurprisingly, maybe, there's little neuroscience research on Christian liturgy as such. for now, but there is research on elements of it, like sharing a meal with other people, habitual repetitive movements, synchronized speech and singing, listening to another speak together, touch and eye contact as we do at the sign of peace or did before COVID. The details of the neural correlates of these elements are too extensive for me to get into, so I will not bore you with them, but please ask at the end if there's one that you're interested in. It's enough to say, I think, that by exploring our biology in these moments, we see that the elements of the liturgy have tremendous power to change us, to transform our brains. The rituals create in us, not only in soul, but in body, new memories, new habits, new beliefs and desires, and new bonds of belonging with other people. So just by going to mass, you're making yourself physically available to the Lord's renewal of your life and the overcoming of the bounds of division that exist between you and the rest of the people in the chapel. Of course, we also believe that the mass is participation in the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord, which achieved our eternal salvation. But I think that through the lens of neuroscience, we can see that this is not just, again, with substance dualism. This is not just a spiritual reality that happens on a different level. It's not divorced from your everyday life, and it's not divorced from your body. It reaches into your flesh. It generates newness of life from within, in your community, here and now. And then finally, personal prayer in silence. Prayer, in an often quoted line, is nothing other than raising your mind and heart to God. Or to use another image, one that I love, prayer is opening the door to the Lord who is standing at that door and knocking, as he says in the book of the Apocalypse, And those of you who practice mental prayer regularly will know just how much of a source of peace and joy it can be in any circumstance. So neuroscience has sought to understand what happens in the brain during such experiences. A lot of the studies are of dubious quality, unfortunately, Uh, and in part because lots of them operationalize prayer in a really reductive way. But I think that we can still draw... A couple conclusions from the literature and the primary finding that emerges i think is that we see the same patterns of brain activity during christian prayer as we do during interactions with human beings so specifically prayer seems to activate the temporopolar region temporoparietal junction medial prefrontal cortex precuneus you don't need to know those names these are regions of the social brain that i mentioned earlier when talking about friendship so in other words, the brain seems to participate in our dialogue with the triune God in a similar way as it participates in our dialogue with friends and loved ones. This might scandalize non-Christians. In fact, when this paper came out, it did scandalize non-Christians who saw this as contradicting the transcendence and divinity of a deity, that the brain activity should, should be different. But to us Christians, of course, this seems eminently reasonable because we believe in a God who took a human form, a human face, so that we could encounter him and befriend him. And so that friendship might be what restores us to our eternal destiny. Okay, what does prayer have to do with peace? Well, the heart of every Christian prayer is, in the final words of the book of the Apocalypse, Apocalypse, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Every true gesture of prayer is asking the Lord to come save the world, not just to save ourselves. And one of my favorite lines, Luigi Giussani says, if prayer is not begging for Christ to come to the whole world, it's not prayer, it's individualistic pietism. So every time we pray, no matter what it's about, we're interceding on behalf of the whole world. We're going with confidence before the throne of grace to beg him to heal our wounds of violence and war and division. It's in this practice, I think, that we discover that our greatest joy is in imitating Christ, in giving our own lives for the salvation of the world. So, in summary, we've seen today that our brains reflect the truth of our origin in the heart of the Trinity. They illustrate that we were created from the beginning in a relationship of self-giving love. And that's what our destiny is. But neuroscience also puts flesh and bones on the devastating effect that our rejection of this relationship has on us. How our desperate desire to make ourselves God increases daily the misery and the woundedness of the world, this entire world that's at war and self-destruction. But finally, I think we've also seen that the church and exactly the ordinary things that she proposes for the Christian life, care for children, friendship, and prayer can grant us the healing that the Lord desires for us and transform us into channels of his peace for the whole world. But I'd like to conclude with an invitation appropriate for this month of May, which is to ask Our Lady to intercede for peace. Because who shows us more than Mary that our lives can truly become wellsprings of peace for this world? We call Mary, we Catholics call her Mother of Mercy and the Queen of Peace. But if you think for a moment, what did she do to achieve those titles? She like sit down at the negotiating table between Jews and Romans and like, all right, we're hashing out our differences or campaign to end the oppression of her people, or even in the early church, like eliminate all disagreement and discord between Peter and Paul. No, she became queen of peace by saying yes to the invitation that the Lord sent her through the angel Gabriel by receiving Christ in her womb, by living a quiet life in Nazareth, raising a child, caring for Joseph and later the beloved disciple participating in her local community, going to the temple. So the other words, care for children, friendship, and prayer. This is how she became the mother of mercy, how she ushered into the world a peace that the world cannot give. Which is not to say, and this is hugely important, that political efforts to end war and oppression in our world are vain. They are not vain. They are hugely important. They deserve our material support, our spiritual support, our political support, But such efforts would be vain without the presence of Christ, because he alone can generate life. So let's invoke our Blessed Mother, Mother of Christ and therefore Mother of each one of us, and ask her to please guide us in heeding the Pope's call to work for peace, that through us the whole world might be at peace. So thank you for listening. I'm very happy to take any questions you might have. I also have... My email listed up here because I know that these topics can sometimes bring up personal things for people so if you would like to talk to me about any of the things that I've shared please do send me an email I'm always very happy to chat